I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Seth. Well, thank you for having me. It's amazing that we are on opposite sides of the earth and having a conversation at the same time. It absolutely is. And I think if we tried to do this about 25 years ago, it probably would have cost us a hell of a lot more money. Or either that or a very, very long piece of string. (laughs) Either that or a very long piece of string with a couple of uh, tin cans on either end. Um, So, I mean, preparing for this interview today, Seth, it's, it's... challenging for a podcaster because on one side you've got such a deep body of work which makes it difficult to know where to begin but at the same time that can be a positive because you've got such a deep body of work Um, but I figured what we might do today is have a bit of fun and try to reconcile some of the sort of conflicting um, belief systems that permeate the entrepreneurial sort of ecosystem Um, and these might transcend philosophy they might transcend marketing and growth and also education which i know you've got quite a an interest in and um i figured a great place to start might be given you have published 19 books given you've published about 8000 odd blog posts in the last i don't know 20 or so years so for a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are ambitious who are trying to achieve more how do they navigate this delicate balance between striving for more trying to achieve, but also self-acceptance and contentment? Oh, I don't think they conflict at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, if you stop doing the things that are either designed to give you a place to hide, mm-hmm. designed to force you away from the work, and also stop doing the things that are simply on your agenda because someone else put them there, it turns out you have plenty of time Mm-hmm. to live the life you want to live and also make a contribution. So in my case, I don't have a television and I don't go to meetings. I also don't use Facebook or Twitter. So between those three choices, I have between seven and 11 hours every day that most people don't have. That's a lot of spare time. And the reason that I made those choices is because those activities weren't helping me cause the change I seek to make. Mm-hmm. So essentially, it's about cultivating time for both reflection and self-acceptance, as well as cultivating time for creativity and and growth, essentially. And um, I think that's a, a great point you make, because so many people, when pressed on why they haven't pursued that business idea or perhaps started that workout routine that they keep pushing off. It's a, the common response is, I don't have time. But then when you look at their calendar and how they spend their time, oftentimes it is these activities that perhaps don't align with where they want to go. It is watching TV. It is spending too much time on social media. Or it is doing things that just don't push them forward. So I guess what I take out of your answer, Seth, is that it's about defining where you want to be in the world and then reflecting on how are you spending your time? And are these activities actually moving you closer or further away from where you want to be? Well, I mean, for the first 10,000 years of recorded history, Mm -hmm. no one spent a minute with a smartphone because there weren't any smartphones. Mm. And the average person today, last data I saw, was spending between four and five hours on the smartphone. Well, where did that time come from? And where is that time going? Because people were certainly fully functioning in 1974 or 1990, Mm -hmm. and 
no one was bemoaning the fact they didn't have time to use their smartphone because they didn't have one. So if we can get back to first principles, who's it for? What's it for? What is the change I seek to make? If it's helping you make the change you seek, then you don't have a time problem. But if you aren't making the changes you hope for, it's probably because in the short run, you're making time decisions that aren't helping you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, including myself, who did wind up with, say, four hours a day of screen time, then made a conscious decision to wind that back. And, you know, nowadays I'm on about one hour a day. Um, but this was perhaps because we had, like you said, 10,000 years with no smartphones, this new device, this new contraption wound up in our pockets. We didn't know how to respond to it. Many of us became addicted to the dopamine hit that came with looking at our little notifications light up every time we opened Facebook or Twitter. Um, did you have a similar sort of experience with social media, with smartphones, whereby perhaps you got a little bit deep into the rabbit hole, but then realized this isn't serving me? Just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from Great Venture Returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. You know, it happened to me long before smartphones, mm -hmm. and uh, it took me a very long time to recover from it. The, the dopamine hit thing is real, and I've experienced it. There have definitely been moments when I've looked up at the end of a seven-hour flight and did not remember sitting down and did not remember anything that transpired other than my email box was empty. Mm. And um, being aware of it is one part of it. But for me, as someone who struggled as an entrepreneur for more than a decade, it mostly became self-preservation. I realized that if I continued to hide from the work, I was going to have to go get a job at a bank. Yeah. And so no naps, uh, no side hustle, no... Uh, this was fun. Let's just get to work so that we can create assets and contributions of value so I get to keep doing this. Yes, fantastic. And um, one thing you touched on there was um, no side uh, no side hustle, essentially. And um, I know you, you had a conversation with Mark Randolph, the co-founder of Netflix. Recently, I had him on this podcast about a couple of months ago. And um, it seems to me that what really galvanized both Mark and Reed in those early days was Amazon refusing to, to buy their business. Um, that, that essentially left them without a sustainable business model, but also without a plan B to work from. No side hustle, no safety net, and they just had to really double down and make it work. And, you know, 20 odd years later, we know what the uh, outcome was there. Um, but nowadays there's such narrative in the startup scene about having a side hustle while keeping your full time job. Um, I mean, you can find numerous musicians like i've had uh, mick wall music journalist on the show who talked about black sabbath and def leppard and rick allen you know the drummer from def leppard who basically had his arm torn off in a car accident but he had no plan b so he made it work with one arm and and he's still the drummer to this day so for entrepreneurs listening to this is it 
advisable to have a plan B or should they be going all in without a parachute? And I guess the answer is somewhere in the middle. Well, okay. So I probably shouldn't have used the word side hustle when I did. So okay. I, the, fir- the first question is, uh, what does it mean to have a hustle mm-hmm. in the sense of hustling other people? And I am unalterably opposed to people who hustle other people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be hustled. I have never met anyone who said, I wish someone would come and hustle me. Someone would come (laughs) use some force that I would rather they not use to get me to do something I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. And like you, I'm approached by hustlers all the time. And as soon as they show up, they're deleted. That there's this sense of you could find some shortcut to have some interaction (laughs) with somebody who's maybe going to give you a leg up. But we can smell that on people, and I want nothing to do with it. So that's my point about hustle. But in terms of side hustle, I think if you're going to make important work, it's pretty important that you don't have drowning as the only alternative. Meaning, Mm. as long as you get to keep playing the game, you get to keep playing the game. But when you're out of the game, you don't get to make anything good anymore. So from a very... From the very beginning, I have always been focused on making sure that no project I was working on could bring me down completely, even mm-hmm. if it didn't work. That when I was a book packager, I did 120 books. Uh, I got 800 rejections in the first year, mm-hmm. but we did a book a month for 10 years. And in order to do a book a month for 10 years, you have to work on 10 books a month. Every three days, you have to be working on another thing. Why? Because the one that's your favorite isn't necessarily going to work. And so you need insurance. You need flows of revenue and trust and deals and interactions so that you don't become locked into a do-or-die mindset. Mm. So if we think about Mark and Reed, and you look at how Netflix evolved, Netflix did not start by saying, let's make Uh, House of Cards or whatever one of their expensive shows are and stream it. They didn't do anything of the sort. They were constantly experimenting with what sort of interactions with people are going to help us do the work we need to do. And then something would come up, for example, Canada. And you look at Canada and you say, well, Canada is a lot like the U.S., Most of what we would do in Canada would be an extension of what we do in the U.S. Let's launch Canada. But I think Reed correctly understood that Canada wasn't an insurance policy because it was exactly the same bet as the United States. Canada would be a distraction Mm. because you'd have to spend a lot of time on postage, on distribution methods, on currency transactions, none of which would support your basic mission. So I think we need a diversity of utility from the work we do on the way to finding something that is going to resonate with the audience we seek to serve. Yes, that's a beautiful answer. And uh, I think what uh, Netflix 
also had going for them in the early days, in the very embryonic days, was the fact that they had this revenue stream coming in from the sale of DVDs, um, which created the financial space, the mental space for them to actually focus on what is that uh, disruptive business model um, that they can uh, move towards, um, which took them several years. But if they didn't have that sort of safety net of the uh, revenue coming in from the sale of DVDs, which was a more straightforward business model, then perhaps they would have uh, turned out the lights much earlier in that piece. Right. The other thing is, it can be really distracting to think about famous companies mm. because you probably don't run one. You yeah. probably aren't the front man for a famous rock group either. That the vast majority of working professionals don't do famous work the vast majority of working musicians aren't in the Billboard Top 40. Mm -hmm. And the rules of physics are suspended for Apple and for Netflix <laughs> and for Amazon. They're in a completely different universe. You can't be like them and expect it's going to work. You have to play by bootstrapper rules. You have to play by cash flow rules. You have to play by an understanding that the smallest viable audience is sufficient and you don't need to please everyone. Yes, and, and that essentially echoes what um, Kevin Kelly uh, talked about years ago with uh, his concept of 1,000 true fans. Like you don't need to be uh, Netflix and have hundreds of millions of subscribers to your platform, but if you find that sort of smallest viable market, as you put it, um, and it's 1,000 true fans who are willing to pay you, say, uh, you know, $1,000 each or even $100 each per year, well, that could be enough for you. And so again, coming back to our initial question of what is enough, where do you want to go? And then working towards that, um, because I feel like nowadays for so many young people coming into the entrepreneurial game, they might wind up on Mashable and TechCrunch and, and entrepreneur.com. And these websites tend to focus purely on the big wins, you know, the home runs and the big failures and not so much all of that stuff in between. And, you know, in the United States, something like 50% of GDP is attributable to small businesses. So I guess is there something to be said about so many kids out there wanting to emulate Netflix when perhaps they could be doing a better job at building a business that may make several million dollars a year, but makes them incredibly happy and aligns with their, say, say purpose, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And um, just put a fine point on the Kevin Kelly thing. Kevin's a dear friend. Mm. His 1,000 true fans is slightly different, and here's why. Mm -hmm. Most people have no true fans, mm. but they may have customers. And in order to get 1,000 true fans, you probably need 100,000 customers. Yeah. And I think both are really important. True fans True fans can keep a creative going for a very long time. But the smallest viable audience means that there are people out there who need you and who will pay for what you do, and you don't need very many of them. That doesn't mean that they have their identity wrapped up in who you are the way the Grateful Dead fans did. Mm. It simply means that they have a particular set of needs and that you see them, you hear them, and you engage with them. 
Yes, yes. Thank you for uh, clarifying. And um, I guess just on that point, uh, on most people not having any true fans, nowadays there is a tendency to optimize for, say, growing your social media following. Um, particularly if you're a millennial, uh, this could seem to many to be like the center of their universe. But I've seen so many uh, early stage entrepreneurs who perhaps have tens of thousands of followers, if not hundreds of thousands in some cases, on, say, Instagram, but then struggling to convert that into paying customers, into actual fans, and oftentimes confusing those social media connections with genuine connections, people who really rally behind what you're about. I mean, do you have any sort of, uh, I mean, I'm sure you do, I know you do, um, advice for people who are actually looking to find that smallest viable market um, as opposed to confusing it with lots of followers online? Okay. So let's start with understanding social media. Mm -hmm. If you are not paying for it, then you are not the customer. You are the product. Twitter and Facebook deliberately make people unhappy until they click again. And they have set up a series of dark patterns to cause us to keep clicking and to compare numbers. Number two, social media friends are not your friends and social media followers are not your followers. That's mm -hmm. just a word these sites use. That the essence of what it means to have the smallest viable audience is that you can actually look someone in the eye, whether they're online or not, and sell them something. That there is an infinity of free in the world, and putting more free into the world is a generous act, perhaps. It's a fine way to build trust, but it doesn't have anything to do with building a market because no one has bought anything from you. So the challenge is, how do you find somebody who has a sufficiently specific problem that if you show up with a solution to it, they will pay you for what you have? That is what it means to do business with somebody. And the new formula of, first I will be famous, <laughs> and then I will be successful, is really problematic. Because you might have to work at being famous forever before you sell something for a dollar. And you might want to be the next Kardashian, but we already have the Kardashians and we don't need any more Kardashians. So this idea of being an influencer in quotes, mm -hmm. that's not really the best path forward. The best path forward is to be super specific about who your work is for and why when someone encounters it, they will not be able to go to bed until they buy it from you and tell someone else. Yes, and finding out who your work is for and essentially honing in on that unique value proposition, uh, there is a strong bias, particularly in Silicon Valley, to, say, build a minimum viable product, uh, rapidly test your assumptions that underpin that business model, the, the customer, the, the price points, the distribution channel, the marketing channel, and so on. Um, and then iterate. Um, but is there, I guess, a risk? Cause I know you wrote in, in Purple Cow that in order to stand out today, you need to be remarkable. And that if you go to market, particularly if it's a small market you're targeting with, say, an MVP that perhaps isn't quite right, you know, maybe it's a half baked solution, uh, in response to a poorly defined problem. Can you burn your bridges and ultimately wind up with, say, an MVP hangover, if you will? Um, perhaps 
the, the, the middle ground is a minimum remarkable product or something to that effect. I mean, what's your view on MVPs? Well, exactly. The, the, the mistake that so many people make is they hide behind the word M, minimum, mm. instead of thinking about the word V, viable. Mm-hmm. So somebody I used to work with realized that every day people were going to a bus station in New York to take a long bus ride to visit relatives in prison. And one of the things that goes on is you want to look good for the person you're visiting. So she decided to set up a little portable stand selling toiletries, combs, makeup, et cetera, for the people who are going to go make this six-hour trip to prison to visit their relatives. Mm -hmm. Now, the first time she did it, she just brought a few combs, some makeup, et cetera. That's minimum. That part wasn't particularly difficult. But because she picked the right smallest viable audience, the things that she brought were sufficient to be viable because she was showing up in the desert with water. She was showing up with nothing fancy, nothing extraordinarily well built, but still remarkable because it was so much better than being ignored, so Mm. much better than having nothing. On the other hand, if you're going to build an alternative to email, a new portal for me to use to communicate with people, it better be a lot better than Gmail or I'm not going to switch. And so we have to take a hard look at what would make it remarkable, what would make it worth talking about. And if you are in a competitive market, as most people who are looking for funding are, you got to be really honest with yourself about what viable means. Mm, that's well, well put. And um, I mean, for many entrepreneurs who perhaps are using the MVP approach and are rapidly testing assumptions and learning, perhaps they're, they're tweaking all of the underlying business model building blocks. Maybe it is that, that woman uh, trying to sell these, these wares, but for whatever reason, people aren't buying. Uh, we're, we're tweaking the ad copy. We're tweaking the marketing channel. We're tweaking the product. We're tweaking the price point. People just are not buying. Now, let's perhaps not talk about Steve Jobs and big companies, but if I was perhaps to have a bit of a reality distortion field going on, I would just keep trying. But at what point should we say, okay, perhaps we've tested enough assumptions, maybe we should quit and move on to something else? Well, the question, the, the idea of keep trying is can be looked at in lots of different ways. Mm. If you keep doing the same thing for the same people, then you're just hustling. And why do you expect it will work tomorrow if it didn't work yesterday? On the other hand, there are certain activities that we engage in where the generous persistence of earning a reputation is critical. So no one wants to be the first patient of a new doctor in town, right? Because You don't want to be a pioneer. You want to be someone who's going to the best doctor in town. Mm -hmm. So in a situation like that, you have a dip that you're facing. And the dip is, can I stick it out long enough that people come to trust me? And what we have to be able to do if we're going to develop good taste, develop the idea, the ability to bring something to people that they're going to want based on our insight as to what they're going to want, as opposed to us randomly typing letters on a page, we only get that good taste by practicing, by making sales calls, by showing up and saying, what about this? And if it's not working, 
it's probably because you don't have good taste yet. You probably don't understand what they see. You lack practical empathy. That what we have to do as marketers is acknowledge that people don't know what we know. They don't want what we want. They don't see what we see, and that's okay. And what we have to figure out how to do is show up in the world in a way where we gain awareness, gain trust, and gain the confidence that people have that they're not going to feel stupid after they engage with us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that echoes what um, I had an Australian football league championship winning coach on the show, essentially the equivalent to winning the Super Bowl, um, talk about uh, decision making and that the more you make decisions, the better you get at making decisions. Like your, your pattern recognition kicks in uh, and you tend to just make better decisions. So by being in the game longer, by having a better understanding of who your customers are, by being out there, by speaking to them, by observing body language and, and so forth, what you're suggesting there is that we get a better sort of feel for how we should be moving, when we should be moving, what we should be moving towards. Is that is that right? It's absolutely correct. And... Because it's so hard to be an entrepreneur, we feel like we deserve a shortcut. Mm. We deserve people to see just how hard we worked at doing what we're doing. But we don't. What we get is the ability, the privilege of showing up for someone who may need us. But first, we have to befriend that community so we can learn to think like them, mm. so we can learn to see what they see. And you know, this it's interesting. If you talk to people who have made it in the music business, mm -hmm. most, not performers, but the, the back office people, most of them are really good at bringing out music that they don't like that much. Because if all you're doing is bringing out music that matches your taste, well, then you're just profiting from being lucky. Lucky that your taste aligns with everybody else's. But what it means to be a professional is that you have this practical empathy. Another way to think about it is you don't have to have had cancer to be a good oncologist because an oncologist, she can imagine what it might be like to have to wrestle with this and can act appropriately. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think also um, one of the lessons or something that comes to mind um, as you were talking and, and also reflecting on uh, everything you've said is in large companies, say, people... Oftentimes aren't empowered, uh, to make those decisions, um, because oftentimes meeting, meetings is where you make a decision. You outsource accountability to a team of eight people. You have all this process and policy going on. So you could be 20 years into your career, um, but still not know how to make a decision without pulling in, say, seven or eight other people. And ultimately, uh, that then shows up in the speed of these organizations, the rate at which they move. And oftentimes, it means that they become more susceptible to disruption. Um, so perhaps cultivating that skill and, you know, the larger your organization gets, if you're lucky enough to grow a, a large uh, large company, um, empowering people with the ability to develop the empathy and to make decisions and to take ownership um, would go a long way to helping them you know, ultimately survive in the long run. But the employee is also complicit because mm -hmm. the employee has been trained from the age of five to believe the myth of the tall poppy, mm. to ask if this will be on the test, to fit in, to wait their turn. And I've been in companies, big and small, mm -hmm. old and new, 
And the CEOs and the people near the CEO say they are desperate for people who will raise their hand and say, please, may I have some responsibility? And if you can ask for responsibility without authority, you will probably get it. And taking responsibility is the step to learning how to do this in a remarkably safe environment. Yeah, and uh, I mean, just on education, uh, as you alluded to, you know, since the age of five, people have been taught to raise their hand if they have a question. They've been taught to, they've been taught that, hey, if you get the right answer, you get a nice little sticker on your um, workbook, you know, at the age of six. And if you scratch it, it smells like a banana or something to that effect. Um, but if you got the answer wrong, well, then that's a big red cross. And, you know, this is going to go into your report and we're going to talk to your parents about this. And then that basically permeates throughout life. Um, but nowadays, and just on the educational system, I mean, people are awarded based on standardized testing, um, which is essentially all about recalling information and then regurgitating it um, in a test. But nowadays we have Google to do that. Um, so, I mean, just keen to understand your, your views on, say, K-12 education. Um, I mean, today's teachers do a lot of great things, but there's perhaps a lot that they're not doing to prepare kids for a vastly uncertain future, one that is always changing. Um, and I guess a question I do have, Seth, is can teachers who perhaps are all about certainty prepare kids for an uncertain world? Well, I'm going to be talking about this a bunch when I come down to Melbourne and Sydney. Mm -hmm. uh, I am pretty outspoken about this, but more and more people are coming around to understand what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. First things first, teachers are amazing. The problem teachers have is that they are often working for administrators and school boards that care very much about compliance mm -hmm. because that's the system that they were built to work in. Yes. And parents have not done a good job of speaking up to answer a straightforward question. The question is, what is school for? And if you have kids or you pay taxes, you really need to answer this question. What is it for? Because I hope we can agree it is not for what it used to be. What it used to be for is to train compliant factory workers. We had a shortage of them. We needed more. Mm -hmm. But now we don't have a shortage of them. We have robots. Now we don't need more of them. So what do we need? And I'm willing to tee this up and go first. I think what we need are people who can solve interesting problems and people who can lead. And what makes it an interesting problem is we don't know the answer. And what it means to lead is not to manage, but to lead being willing, brave enough, connected enough, caring enough to go first. We don't teach either of those things in school. I know that teachers can teach it, but first someone has to hire them to teach it. Mm, yes. And, uh, it seems today like that there are so many stakeholders who perhaps keep things where they are. I mean, a lot of parents just want their, uh, their children to get the grade, understandably, so that they can get to the, the university of their choice and get the role. But, you know, even, um, accounting, for example, faces in many cases, I think it was an NPR report that found accounting roles, audit roles in particular, face a 90% chance of being completely automated, say, in the next 10 to 15 years. So I think parents may have false conceptions about or misconceptions about the security, um, that many once safe, uh, professions 
offered. Um, on the other side, you've got the school administrators who get funded by the parents and you know, they have uh, funding arrangements with schools and, and they're in cahoots with them as well, so, uh, with universities rather. So a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders seem to have their hands tied uh, and I know through a kids entrepreneurship program that we run, many parents uh, who support these programs um, more so support them as something to do on the side. You know, the real thing is getting that grade so we can get into university. You know, it's it's basically signaling, as um, Brian Kaplan argued in his book, The Case Against Education. And I know you've got a four-week uh, leadership course called the Alt-MBA. Um, but this whole concept of signaling as opposed to actually prioritizing being educated and learning. Is that something that you think holds us back that you won't get the same signal, say, from a boutique consultancy as you would, say, from McKinsey, and therefore you will lose out um, on a particular deal, even though you're perhaps 10% of what McKinsey costs, for example, like the the value of signaling and, and the way that may hold us back? Right. So signaling goes back millions of years. Signaling is super important. The reason that peacocks have big feathers mm. is because peahens like big feathers. And we think the reason peahens like big feathers is they are a signal that the organism has plenty of health to waste on growing plumage, which has no function. Mm. So we signal because we evolved to signal. Yes. The question is, are these false signals appearing real? Are we overvaluing certain kinds of signals over other signals. So I'll give you an example. Uh, If you, in the U.S., go to a chiropractor's office, it does not look like a doctor's office. Why is that? It's because chiropractors have not learned that the waiting room is a signal, and if they sent, by spending money, a signal that said that this is a medical establishment, not a rec room, they would have more better paying clients. It's a misunderstanding of what to invest in Mm. signal-wise. The question is, what kind of signal is a grade? And what kind of signal is a degree from a famous college? Now, I use the the term famous instead of good because there's no correlation between famous colleges and good colleges. What we know, whether we're looking at Nobel Prize winners or people who lead organizations, or people who are happy, is there's no correlation between that and whether or not you went to a famous college. Now, there are a couple tiny exceptions. If you want to write for Saturday Night Live, you should go to Harvard and go work on the Harvard Lampoon. But in general, famous colleges are a bad signal. They are extremely expensive in terms of time and money, and they do not give you what they promise. So then the question is, what is a good signal? And I believe a good signal is your cohort, your reputation, and your body of work. That people who have those three things often get chosen long before anybody else. So you mentioned McKinsey. I think McKinsey gets gigs because of those things more than the college degrees of their employees. They may think it's about the college degrees of their employees, but it's not. It's about what do I tell my boss when I hire a company like McKinsey? And what I tell my boss is something like, yeah, well, they worked for our competitor and 
all these good things happened. That is why McKinsey can charge more than an independent consultant down the street. Mm-hmm. Makes makes perfect sense. And um, I mean, just on education as well, uh, on, on the kinds of skills or personal attributes we should be cultivating in, in today's youth, um, comfort with adversity and, and failure to me seems like a pretty uh, poignant one. Um, and I know in your own business dealings, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, 800 rejections during your p- book packaging days early on. Uh, a lot of people, when they face rejection, whether it's making a cold call, whether it's rejection in the business world, whether it's being rejected by uh, a potential mate, whatever the case may be, obviously we have evolutionary reactions that uh, make us feel really, really bad when that happens. And, and for many of us, it may mean that we just quit. Um, now, in your case, you didn't quit. You're like you, you kept going despite those rejections. Um, and eventually through that, you learned a lot and you eventually became successful. Now, how, in your case, Seth, um, did you deal with rejection after rejection after rejection and stay motivated enough to keep going? Well, I felt like I didn't have any choice. Mm-hmm. But um, I can't say that I enjoyed it. After a, a few months after that long year, when it became clear to me that I probably was going to be able to persist, then the rejection started to feel different. Then I created a, a, a category called no for now, mm-hmm. which meant we got rejected for now, but not forever. But when you don't have any yeses and it's over and over and over again and no, it doesn't feel like there's ever going to be a for now. Hmm. So, so the words you use then are, are quite powerful. Um, you know, we got, it's a no for now. Um, and, and I think also one thing I've found works in that space is, especially if you're super early days in your venture, rather than expecting to sell people on the first call, um, treat these calls as opportunities to learn um, what people want, how much they're willing to pay, who you should be speaking to in the company. And and I, I had Scott Belsky, the founder of uh, Behance on the sure. show. And he, he was saying how his team in the early days, I mean, it took him years to get to product market fit, but they would create surrogate metrics and they would celebrate these sur- surrogate metrics as they got closer to the real goal of, of you know, building that, uh, finding product market fit and actually making a, building a sustainable business model. Um, so having something along the way to keep you motivated rather than just this uh, light at the end of the tunnel, which could be months or, or years away. Yeah. And, you know, everything Scott says is smart, but that's particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. The Again, we're trying to get back to don't use other people's metrics, use yours. Mm. Don't use other people's uh, desires, use yours. We should not be outsourcing how we do what we do or why we do what we do to make somebody else have their business be more successful. Perfect. Love it. Um, we've got a few minutes left. So I wanted to uh, perhaps change gears and just talk about, um, culture, uh, within uh, startups, within organizations. And, um, I mean, there is a tendency for organizations to hire for, say, culture fit. Um, but from a, from the perspective of creativity, Seth, um, it, to me, it would seem that if you hire, if you have a hundred people working together who all fit, say, the culture, so to speak, um, could that perhaps suppress that organization's creativity because maybe you're not bringing in people who 
bring in, say, diversity of thought or, or don't quite fit the culture? I mean, it seems like these two ideas are in conflict, or perhaps you can enlighten me on that one. No, I think great point, and there's some good writing on this. Um, if you have a successful string quartet mm-hmm. and you decide to grow, you're only going to hire violinists and cello players. Mm. Where are the clarinets? Where are the trumpets? Where is the timpani? You cannot get to build an orchestra, a mighty orchestra, an orchestra that can play truly important pieces of work across a wide spectrum if all you're going to do is hire mirrors of the quartet you already have. That what we know is that diversity, whether it's in the drawer in your kitchen where you keep your tools or in an organization, bringing somebody in who doesn't overlap with other people almost always increases your productivity more than just hiring another person who looks and acts like the best person on your team. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it was our friends Johansson uh, who wrote The Medici Effect, and he talked about how the Medici family would bring, uh, say, architects and sculptors and painters and whatnot from across Europe uh, to Florence, and that this uh, intersection of different disciplines, like you say, the, the, the clarinets, the violins, the harps, and so on, um, essentially gave way for the renaissance you know the the cultural and creative revolution of of europe um but if all you had was say architects and no engineers and painters and sculptors and everything else to go along with it um it would have been a pretty boring florence one would think but it's scary Mm -hmm. because the experience that each of us have cannot possibly be as wide as the sum total of everyone's experience Mm. And some of the most successful leaders I know, people like Jacqueline Novogratz, work on that problem by spending a month in Pakistan, a month in Egypt, by spending time in the field, working with people that they are serving without regard for their background, that isolating ourselves from how the world works does not make our work better. Mm, that makes make perfect sense. And uh, I guess during the Industrial Revolution, we saw that whereby people who were previously, say, craftsmen and craftswomen, so, so say their job was to, say, make a sword. Let's, let's be all medieval. Um, but the Industrial Revolution would have meant that one person would work on the handle, the other person would work on another part of the sword, and your role would just be very routine. And you wouldn't see the whole, uh, the entire sword. You would not have the satisfaction of creating something from start to end. And so essentially what you're talking about there is actually getting to the end of the assembly line and seeing what, how your role fits into the bigger picture. And perhaps this is something that a lot of leaders um, don't empower their people with in, in really helping them to understand how their role fits into the goals of the organization or into the, the organization reaching its goals. Um, and when you don't understand the how you fit in, it just becomes a job and something you do and something that's perhaps not very fulfilling. And the problem with the assembly line is the assembly line is the most efficient thing in history mm. if if the world doesn't change. Mm-hmm. But when the world changes, the fact that you have 100 people doing 100 different jobs and they can't do any other job, the whole thing falls apart. So a friend of mine used to work with the people at Kodak. Mm-hmm. And Kodak, as you know, invented 
most of the patents in digital photography, but they stuck with film so long, they went bankrupt. And she said to the CEO, why don't you scale back film? And he called her over to the window and it overlooked headquarters in Rochester, New York. And he said, how many buildings do you see out there? And she said, oh, I don't know, a couple dozen. He said, there are 38 buildings right out front. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then he said, do you know how many steps there are in the production of film for cameras? And my friend said, I don't know, 38? And the answer was yes, <laughs> which meant every one of those buildings did one of the 38 jobs, which meant he couldn't cut down by half the campus because he needed to keep all 38 buildings open if he wanted to make even one roll of film. The assembly line is not your friend when the world changes. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Seth, we are almost out of time. So I just want to leave you with one last question or leave our audience with one last answer, perhaps, which was, um, I suppose for a long time, conventional wisdom has always been to uh, go to Silicon Valley if you're an entrepreneur, because that's where you can tap into the collective brain trust. You can raise capital. Um, and if you're lucky, lock in on a successful business model. Um, but we've seen numerous people leave the Valley um, in recent years, Peter Thiel, Tim Ferriss, because of its, say, uh, homogeneous thinking. Um, and ultimately, if everybody looks like you and sounds like you, like we alluded to a few moments ago, do you stop being creative after a while? Um, is there value in entrepreneurs perhaps going against this so-called conventional wisdom and setting up shop away from the hive? Yeah, I used to live in Menlo Park mm. uh, and have been to Sand Hill Road and was inside of Yahoo at its peak. I strongly recommend people go nowhere near the valley if they can help it. Mm -hmm. You know, about 20 years ago, they put up a big sign and it said, people with low morals who are quite hungry to make a lot of money are welcome here. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also a mindset among people who know how to program that they're going to work for the highest bidder and you're probably not going to be the highest bidder. So there's no geographic reason to be there anymore. You don't need the kind of money to run your company that uh, a typical industrial startup needs. So figure out if you're a tech entrepreneur, what's the successful thing that you can launch? How much will it cost to make that? How do you build into that thing a reason for people to share it? Because the network effect is really powerful. And if you have those things in place, you're going to be fine. And what you want to do is create something that has investors calling you, not needing to go unbended knee to find investors. Beautifully said. Well, Seth, thank you so much. I've uh, really enjoyed today's conversation. If our audience uh, wants to learn more and see you in person, particularly those of us in Sydney and Melbourne, you'll be in town in May. I um, mean, people can find out more about that at thegrowthfaculty.com. They can check out your blog and 8,000 odd blog posts at seths.blog, Instagram at Seth Godin, and of course, your podcast, Akimbo, um, which they can find at akimbo.me. Um, any parting words of wisdom for our audience before we wrap up? Uh, well, I would avoid words of wisdom whenever possible, <laughs> but I'm going to encourage people to actually do some work. Actually put yourself out there in the world and say, here, I made this, because nothing will teach you more than that. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Seth.
A pleasure. Thanks for doing this. It was fun. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.